Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, a conversation where good thoughts help renew the mind with the Word of God. I'm Charlie Carter, and I'm here with Tim Little and Andy Stearns. Let's jump into the conversation. Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast. We have a special guest on our podcast today, Dr. Pennington from Southern, and uh, I'm going to introduce him a little uh, in a more full sense in just a moment when we get to our, when he gets to his turn in books and business. Uh, so, uh, but before I do that, thank you for being here, Dr. Pennington. That's a joy. Thank you. And uh, let's go ahead and uh, take care of some Thinklings business, huh, Tim? Books and business. There we go. Okay, I'll go first. Uh, there's a book I finished for uh, a class here at uh, Faith Seminary assigned by Dr. Paul. It's bioethics. Bioethics, it's a primer for ethics in the medical field. I really enjoyed it. I just finished it a couple of days ago, and it talks about uh, a bunch of ethical issues relating to procreation or reproduction, uh, contraception, gets into artificial wombs a little bit, and uh, a lot of stuff that's way over my head. Uh, but I just, if you're interested in that sort of thing, thinking through ethical uh, dilemmas in the medical field as it relates to those types of things, um, organ donations, et cetera, uh, this, it's just a good starting place. Uh, I think he, the author, and I, don't, I don't have his name written down, but uh, I think he's coming from a Lutheran perspective, but has a good, a good worldview, gives some good thoughts. Um, I think I, I gave it like a four or five when I posted it on my Instagram. But uh, Bioethics uh, is the name of the book. And uh, it's, it's a good intro level discussion for those types of things. So that's my book for the day. All right. So I just started a book, so I'm not going to have one to rate yet, but I'll give you a quick preview of it. It's called Pagans and Christians in the City, Culture Wars from the Tiber to the Potomac by Stephen D. Smith. Uh, it's, so far, it's really intriguing. I'm only a couple chapters in. Um, essentially, he's taking an essay by T.S. Eliot about uh, various cultural issues, and he's saying, it seems like maybe that's right. So I'm just going to summarize really quickly. He says that normally when people think through history, what they have done is they've said it's kind of like we were in paganism, and then Christianity comes on the scene, and you know Jesus is on the scene, and then you have like the Middle Ages where it's mostly the church running the show. And then the Enlightenment takes place, and we move into more of a secular age. So he's, he's going to angle towards saying that a lot of our cultural analysis today comes from that perspective, that today we have, we're like on the right side of history, that sort of thing. Using the Eliot article, and then he's going he's gonna to make a case that perhaps today it's not going from pagan to Christian to secular, but it's always a, a back and forth between just a pagan worldview and a Christian worldview. Now, when he says that, he's very careful to say that just because you're in a Christian, like, operating worldview, it may be more of a cultural Christian operating. You're not actually a true believer, but it's intriguing. I don't know how to analyze it yet or assess it, but some of the things he's been sharing are fascinating. And so I would say I'm very interested. I got the, it was a recommendation from a listener uh, <clears throat> who's a pastor. And then on the side, he teaches at a classical academy, he and his wife. And uh, so he has found it very enlightening. So I'm looking forward to reading it. So it's Pagans and Christians in the City. No rating yet. Look for that in the coming weeks. So I have been reading our author's book, uh, Jesus, the Great Philosopher by Jonathan Pennington. 
And since that's going to be what our main topic is, it's not going to be my books and business. Other than this, I've been working on my book, Song of Songs for Singles, and the workbook. So I don't really have a books and business right now. I'm writing, and that's been my focus. I've been in some Song of Songs commentaries, uh, which I'm not going to really rate, um, but that's pretty much it. So that's my books and business, and that'll help us get to our author and our guest. Hey, yeah. Uh, so what I'm working on right now, just at the beginning stages, is a book about how to effect change in both church and culture with this vision of beauty. And so the tentative title is Building Beautiful Things, but it's this, uh, it's kind of an expansion of the idea of Christianity as the greatest philosophy of the world. And then um, thinking about being a, a people that build beautiful things and invite people into, into the beauty of God's kingdom. So that's, it's just in the works. It's got a bunch of moving parts to it. So that's what I'm working on right now. In terms of reading, uh, it's all over the place, but I think probably the book that this week has impacted me the most is uh, Kurt Thompson, who's a psychiatrist, who Christian psychiatrist, who's just really brilliant. He's written several books, but his latest one is um, uh, The Soul of Desire, and it's about beauty, and it's this incredible intersection between neuroscience and what we're learning about neuroscience uh, and the idea of beauty and the Christian faith, and it's super good. I really really recommend it and uh have already learned a lot from it so so beauty is actually a topic we've uh talked about on the podcast quite a bit something i've studied from an old testament theological perspective uh and being you know studying the song of songs uh, where the beauty is of human beauty is a prominent theme who is the author of that book again uh kurt thompson he's a you know psychiatrist a practicing psychiatrist and uh the Anatomy of the Soul, The Soul of Shame, or two or two of the later books that have been yep. pretty popular. And then this one's called The Soul of Desire. Uh, so, cool. It's really good. I found it now. Thanks. He's gonna he's gonna order some for the bookstore, probably. That's what good. Tim always does. <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> so let me introduce our guest a little bit more than uh, just in name from earlier. Dr. Jonathan Pennington. I'm I'm working from his Twitter profile. So these are the, the descriptions on there. I think there's six of them. So we'll just walk through those six. He says he's a New Testament professor at Southern Seminary, and that is indeed true, correct? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> How did you get into New Testament? Why, why, why not Old Testament? Uh, yeah, my Greek's definitely better than my Hebrew. I'll just say that. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, I don't know beyond that. <laughs> sure. Well, I think that's probably all of us. Our Greek is yeah. better than our Hebrew. So, so. other than Tim. <laughs> So uh, after that, it says husband and father. And we were talking a little bit before we started recording uh, about your wife being from Iowa. So tell us about your family. Yeah. So my wife and I have been married 29 years, heading towards 30. Uh, we have six kids who are ages 25, almost 26, down to 16. Uh, we all live in Louisville and enjoy each other a lot, spend a lot of time together. And uh, no grandkids yet, but I'm looking forward to that deeply. And uh, my wife's a professional mosaic artist, so she works as an artist and does murals, you know, and she's doing a big outside mural for a city uh, nearby us right now. And so, yeah, our family is very artistic and everybody's either musical or visual artist. And uh, so, you know, which means we're all poor, but enjoy, <laughs> poor and happy. 
hey, happiness is a good thing, right? That's right. That it is. That's We're going to get into that in a little bit. <laughs> right. uh, the next, the next couple are pastor and speaker. Uh, so, where do you pastor? What's your heart in pastoral ministry? And uh, when you get to speak, what do you normally speak on? This is a really good way to do the introduction. Nobody's ever done this. I didn't even remember what was on my Twitter <laughs> handle. That's really good. I got your back. Yeah, that's good. I'm the pastor of spiritual formation at Sojourn East, which is a, one of a family of six churches in Louisville. That's also connected to a larger church planning network called Harbor Network. Um, I mean, we're independent churches, but there's a lot of organic relationships between us. Uh, and I, that we have a shared pulpit, so I preach about 30, 35% of the time, sometimes a little bit more. Um, and involved in the sermon planning all around. And then I run the men's ministry as well as supervise several of the other staff. We have a, it's a pretty large church and pretty large staff. So I'm in, I supervise the staff that run the women's ministry, care, care ministry, uh, counseling care, and also um, community groups. So that's all on my team. And so, uh, yeah, so joy. It's great. Uh, and speak. Yeah, I, do I always say I'm just blessed to have a lot of really good friends who live all over the place and run really interesting things. So pastors and a lot of theological institutes. I'm real connected with the Village Institute and uh, the Village Church in Dallas. And actually, there are several relationships there that I travel around uh, quite a bit to the various institutes that are related to the village or spun off from it and teach at those. Uh, I'm also connected with uh, you know, just again, other centers and, and things that I'm involved mm -hmm. with that result mm -hmm. in a, a fair amount of speaking. I think I was this this last couple of months has been a lot. I think in January I was on 18 different planes. <laughs> so, and that included a trip to Italy, which was quite nice um, for some academic and holiday stuff. But uh, yeah, just it's it's a joy to travel quite a bit. And uh, just last weekend I was down at a classical school in Memphis, Tennessee, which was mm -hmm. actually I've only done a few gigs in the kind of classical school world, but the Jesus of Great Philosopher book we're going to talk about has begun to have some, I think, helpful inroads to people that are involved in classical schooling, which I didn't write it for that reason, mm -hmm. but I think there's a lot of overlap. So that's kind of a newer thing is to kind of get connected with the classical school movement, which I'm excited about too. So. Yeah, Andy and I, both our, our children are involved in ah. the classical movement. Okay. And so I can see the correspondence between Jesus the Great Philosopher. I didn't think about it until you mentioned it, but there's definitely a, a connection there, plus the emphasis on beauty. When you go out and speak, are you usually talking about beauty or what might be like the major topic you're talking uh, about? Uh, I, I do, I've done a lot of work on the Sermon on the Mount and human flourishing. And so that's one of my books that's... Kind of widespread and so a lot of times i go and teach on the sermon Mount. i teach a lot on matthew which is what my phd is in and then i i teach a lot on jesus great philosopher so like i just gave mm -hmm. a i did a teacher in service training at this large classical school in memphis like i said i did an all-day thing on basically how jesus the great philosopher relates to the calling of classical education so uh yeah that's cool. um, yeah it's fun so what what's the name of that classical school that you were it's at? called westminster academy are they are they ACCS? Do you know? I think so. I got connected. You probably yes. I got connected to them because I spoke last summer at the Society for Classical Learning. If you know the SCL, which is a mm -hmm. kind of a more think tank side of it, not the <laughs> accreditation. I I spoke at their national conference uh, sure. last summer, and that's how I got connected with some of those people. So. We we have a buddy just down the hall here, Dr. Boyd, who 
I don't know if it's that classical school. It might be in Nashville instead of Memphis, but he has a buddy who's uh, an administrator at a school down there. And I'm just wondering if I'll ask him after we're done recording, if that's the place. I don't, I'm not sure if it is, but um, yeah, we're, I, I had never really heard of classical uh, Christian education until the last year or two. And then uh, c- connecting the dots with the Inklings and uh, Dorothy Sayers and some of those ideas. And uh, now I think most of my students here get little pieces of classical <laughs> mindset. <laughs> so uh, anyway, but uh, yeah, Andy, were you going to comment on his trip? To Italy yeah, I was just going to say yeah. that. Yeah, we know you went to Italy because we were all following you on it. Well, me and Charlie were following you on Instagram and maybe just slightly jealous, oh, just yeah. a little bit. It looked you, gorgeous. It looked really cool. I'll tell you what, January during COVID is the time to go to Italy for sure. <laughs> in terms of like, uh, there was nobody there, uh, especially in Rome. And so we literally walked into everything, like no oh. lines. All the, I was there with some uh, people who lived there and they were like, yeah, we've never seen this, that you could just wow, walk into it's the empty. Walk into the bathroom uh, again. Yeah, Florence was a little bit more. We, my son and I, popped up to Florence as well. It was a little bit more crowded, but still, it was, it was a good time to go. So, something that I was struck by in looking at your pictures is some of these very famous works of art that I've seen on like book covers and things. Uh, you're taking. They're huge. They're, huge, they're absolutely yeah. huge. Like, were they were they all that big? I mean, they look like yeah, they were dwarfing you. Yeah, most of them, and some bigger. Like you think about it, like Raphael's Transfiguration. It's massive. Um, yeah, you may have seen the day I randomly, we popped into this church. And this happens a lot when you're in Rome, like you just pop into a church and there's like some super famous painting that's just like there, you know, and the, the one of this, this amazing uh, thing was seeing Caravaggio's triptych of Matthew, uh, the inspiration of Matthew and the calling of St. Matthew. And then the martyrdom of St. Matthew, which I'd not seen before, but they're all right there. You know, it's just, there's, you crazy. have several events like that that are pretty crazy. Yeah. So. Yeah, that, I think so. Uh, the gal that helps us with our social media, Sydney, she always asks us for quotes at the end of a, an episode. And I think one of the quotes in contention is January during COVID is the time to go. <laughs> uh, well, sure. that, that's yeah. horrendous. Know, we could sell the rights to that to like Expedia or something. Yeah, I don't know. Probably get sued for that. So be careful. Yeah, probably. Yeah, <laughs> yeah a little dicey. Yep. But, uh, okay, so. Back to so you have two more things on his Twitter. We're gonna jump to the last one and then we'll go to author. But you also have on your host of cars and theology. Uh, tell us about that. I just I just dabbled into it a little bit. T- talk to us about cars and theology. Cars, co- cars coffee theology. Yeah, you know, look it up on YouTube. Yeah, you know it's uh, it was so fun. Obviously, it was inspired you know by Seinfeld originally. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the conversation is a lot more substantive than what you hear. I mean, Seinfeld, you know, Cars, Meetings, Coffee was fun to watch uh, just because you see lots of interesting, famous people, but obviously the conversations weren't overly substantive, you know. Yeah. But but again, I I have an old sports car, which coincidentally has been out of commission for quite a while, like nine months or so, and I just today picked it up, had the clutch replaced and stuff. So that was pretty nice. Cool. I've done most of the repairs on it myself, and I tried to, I did some clutch work, but it longer story but anyways i got it fixed and so i just drove it today for the first time in like nine months it was it's fun so it's an old it's an old sports car and so the combination of that plus i just again am blessed to know a lot of people and have be friends with a lot of really interesting thinkers and authors and then i just love to talk when i was a kid i always joke you know i, I wanted to be a dj when i was a kid <laughs> so, you know the 1970s and 80s growing up you know 
throwing some albums and talking between them. You know, that was kind of like my dream. And so uh, <laughs> maybe when I grew up still, that'll I'll still arrive. But anyway, so the kind of combination of that uh, for a couple of years, I recorded, I think we have 23 episodes up there. COVID killed it is what happened. I was all of a sudden, you know, it wasn't, you know, yeah. kosher to be driving around one foot from somebody else in a car, you know, so, so it, it killed it. And then life changed and I just didn't get back to it. I, I might still, people often ask me about it, but basically it's, yeah, you can look it up on YouTube and it's just me driving around with really interesting people of a wide range of interests and talking with them about their book, uh, books. And yeah, it's, those are fun episodes. Yeah. Fun. That's, that's, it's, it's a very, I mean, obviously right away you, if, if you've heard of Seinfeld's take on it, like right away, I'm like, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, but it is, you know, a lot better conversation to discuss theology rather than just kind of the ins and outs of comedy. Um, but yeah, so that's fascinating. Yeah. Well, and check I was it out. wondering, and, you know, let me just say along those lines that, you know, it's interesting. Again, I do a lot of podcast interviews and they're great. And I love to talk to people, but something different happens when you're driving around and you're not facing each other. That, and I, mm -hmm. I've just found like we had great conversations, not that this is going to be a horrible conversation now that we're facing each other, but, but I think of, <laughs> you, you're probably familiar with what Lewis, C.S. Lewis says about the difference between friends and lovers. Lovers look each other eye mm -hmm. in the eye, friends are shoulder to shoulder looking out on the world. And obviously it's not the only way to have a conversation is to be shoulder to shoulder, but something different does happen in the car mm. uh, when yeah. you're just kind of driving around. I don't know what it is. There's something kind of magical about it. And so it was a real joy to do that. So. Absolutely. That brings us to the last uh, descriptor here, which is what we're going to get into talking about your book, but you are an author. And so we are going to talk about your book, Jesus, the Great Philosopher, Rediscovering the Wisdom Needed for the Good Life. And I actually don't know if Andy's the one that turned me onto this or if I stumbled onto it some other place. But uh, do you remember, Andy? Were you so the one that I, I read it and I was going nuts over it last summer. And then you said, yeah, I'd started it in like audible or something. I think you had started it, but like you got, I think you had a project or something. And then I think we all got back to it and it was just really exciting after that. So. Yeah, I do remember I was on a road mm. trip out to, where was I? I was driving through like Wyoming. Oh, that's what it was. Oh, you're on, I, on your way to Idaho. Yeah. When I went to the elk hunt. Yeah. And I was listening to it. Driving from Iowa to first Salt real, Lake City. The real good life, the elk hunt. <laughs> yeah. Well, I can remember it, it was like a, I was somewhere in, I think, Wyoming, and it was kind of like a misty, snowy day. And I'm driving around these loops in the mountains, like lakes and, you know, trees everywhere. And it's kind of like snowing, sleeting. And I can remember that, like the, the conversation on politics and the polis, you know, and getting into, Plato and Aristotle. And I'm just like, man, this is, this is perfect. This is the good life right here. <laughs> Listening to this book, driving through the mountains. Uh, but then Andy's right. You know, I, I got back to reality and didn't get to finish it until last night. So anyway, at least in the audible version, but yeah. So <laughs> let's talk about Jesus, the great philosopher. And so I'll just pitch it to you. Uh, and you said you wanted to be a DJ and I will point out that you are a DJ. You're, you're Dr. J. So uh, oh, I'll pitch it over to you. Wow. Impressive, Charlie. That was impressive. I'll kick it over to Dr. J and just <laughs> tell us how you got to Horrendous. this topic. How did you get motivated to write this book? Like, what was the, the lead up to Jesus the Great Philosopher? Yeah, that's good. Uh, 
you know, I, uh, what happened was, I, I, as I look back on the last 20 years of being a professor and writer, uh, I just very thankful to God because I, I just kind of interested and curious about a lot of things. And then I don't really, I didn't like have this trajectory, like in the next 20 years, I want to write these books. It's always been kind of like, I'm really interested in this. And then I spend time kind of getting it and then teach a lot on it or and preach, but then write a book. And then in the last several books, what's happened is as I got to the end of one book, I saw, okay, I need to kind of, it's like a lily pad to the next thing. Like I couldn't see what the right. next thing I wanted to work on was until I finished this thing or near it. And that's what it was. The previous work was on the Sermon on the Mount and Human Flourishing. I mentioned that it was a a 10-year project, really, of teaching through the sermon and thinking deeply about it and then self giving a self-education and ancient ethics and virtue ethics and Aristotle, et cetera. And all that finally culminated in a, a book, a pretty big book. I mean, I think very readable, but it's a 350-page book that's half argument about what the Sermon on the Mount is and then half of a half commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. And so as I finished that book, I was teaching and preaching a lot. And especially the argument of that book is that Jesus really is offering um, the true vision of human flourishing. That, and, and, and that was becoming clear that he's really being presented in the New Testament as a philosopher. As that was finishing, that wasn't the main point of that book, but I knew that's what I needed to do next. And to kind of expand it, uh, to look at the whole Bible uh, and... And also to make it simpler too. So, you know, instead of a 350 page academic commentary, which again, I hope is readable, but it's still a different genre. I wanted to write something with Brazos, which, you know, the Baker and Brazos people are good friends and I've worked with them on quite a few projects now, but something at a more a thoughtful level, they call it. It's not popular, you know, but it's thoughtful um, readers and to expand it and, and to make it more um, illustrative too. You know, I, you know, my Little Pony and various other things make appearances you may have caught. And uh, so, yeah, it was really a, it's the next step in my mind of the whole vision that I've learned over the last 15 years of that Jesus's work uh, in the world is very much uh, a restoration of us to the fullness of, of what it means to be human, uh, which if you know your Latin, that's what virtue means. Vir, vir means human, really. To be virtuous is to be human, mm. as opposed to be vicious or viceful, which is what an animal is. So this sort of, this idea of entering into the fullness of humanity, I think is a really, really helpful way to see what the Bible is really about and what Jesus is about. Uh, and this book is trying to kind of explore that. So, yeah. so why the connection to philosopher and wisdom? <laughs> yeah, I always joke that uh, I had to fight for two years to get the publisher to keep the word philosopher in the title. And, huh, and uh, no the, book, the yeah. book's done well enough, but you know, I know that they uh, were concerned that from a marketing perspective, <laughs> philosopher is a pretty <laughs> negative term. But I, that I, did, I decided that I really wanted to try to redeem that word uh, because it, it does just mean a lover of wisdom and a, teach, and a teacher of wisdom really ultimately is how it functions. And the biggest, the point is, you guys have read the book, you know, is that um, this was a very common image in both sacred art and in literature from the very earliest days of Christians, they thought about Jesus this way and they talked about him this way. And I, I wanted to try to recapture that aspect of that and bring that back into our, into our Christian faith and hope and practice. Um, I, I like the word philosopher. I like the word philosophy, um, but it is an uphill battle. I know because it's, uh, 
it's come to have very negative connotations, which is unfortunate. That's kind of the early part of the book is that it doesn't have to. I mean, it was a great term in the ancient world. It's gotten really messed up in later centuries, but it was a great term. And I'm just trying to help us recapture it. As you talk through uh, Jesus, the great philosopher, you give kind of four compass points on philosophy and they are metaphysics, epistemology, ethics, and politics. And you demonstrate how both the Old Testament and the New Testament very clearly hit on some of these topics. We don't have time to look at all of them, but do any of those four jump out to you from an Old Testament or a New Testament perspective? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think they are all deeply integrated with each other. So I think it is good to just kind of say the Bible is giving us a really clear vision of what the nature of reality is. Um, that's a very, from Genesis 1 on. It also is talking a lot about this big question of how do we know things? How do we know things truly? Uh, it's, of course, talking about ethics. But what we don't often realize is that the eth- ethics is based very much on those first two things, especially metaphysics. In other words, to live well and to experience the good life, you have to live in accordance with, re- accordance with reality. And that's why the Bible starts in Genesis 1 with a picture of what is reality. What does it mean to be human? Where do we come from? What is our relationship to God or a gods or, you know, something like that? Uh, And then finally, a big part of ethics and living well is how do you structure relationships with each other? And that's what I mean by politics. So I can't really separate them because they're all four speaking together about this great human question of what, how do you find life? How do you find happiness? How do you find uh, what we're made for shalom if you want to use the you know old testament term for it so uh, the this whole physics and metaphysics and the con- the co- combination of the two i found very fascinating from a proverbial and old testament perspective and how wisdom is the order of creation wisdom begins with like physics it's like before creation exists and so as I read through that section, you know, a lot of our world, and you mentioned this, is all about physics and science, but you can't really divorce it from metaphysics mm-hmm. and the, the good life and, and human flourishing. Mm-hmm. So I had written that down. And I didn't know if you had any, uh, any comment or any kind of additional yeah. input to just, you know, um, the, the combination of those two physics and metaphysics and from an old Testament theological perspective. Yeah, it's good. Well, this was a big part of the journey of discovery for me is to come to realize that the ancient philosophers didn't make that separation. That's a very modern phenomenon to think about physics and science is somehow disconnected from the great human questions of where did all this all come from and how do you live well within it? And what does it mean to be human? And, you know, we've so specialized and so split off uh, the different areas of knowledge. This is a big part of the Enlightenment modern turn is the specialization of knowledge, which, you know, has some advantages. I mean, I love my iPhone. I'm glad that I'm glad that you have on gynecological oncologists, you know, from like, <laughs> I mean, I mean, I don't mean that as a joke. I mean, my friend, yeah. you know, I have a I have a friend whose wife is going through cancer and I'm thankful for that level of specialization. Right. But boy, the, the loss is huge. The, the loss of not having people that connect all the dots and, and put it all together. And that's what ancient philosophers did. And that's what the Bible does. That's the point is it sort of makes these connections between all these aspects of what it means to be human and, and speaks into them. 
Yeah, that's actually what I think stands out as you start into the book is you actually throw out some modern options of people who are trying to do this, but are very narrow in their scope. And probably the, I thought the funniest of them was you mentioned Nick Offerman, also known as Ron Swanson, and how he presents like, this is what a man is supposed to be like. And he's a, a modern philosopher, but he's just so specialized. He's not giving me a full ethic. But then here's Jesus who presents a completely all-encompassing way to have a, a satisfied life. And uh, so uh, I just thought that connection was, as, as I was kind of wading through those ideas, it just kind of clicked in my mind, like, man, this is absolutely what Jesus is trying to do. Um, in that sense, uh, you talk about under the section in the New Testament, the New Testament ethics, you mentioned this, Im, uh, I'm going to pronounce it wrong, imitative or agentic uh, ethics, where you're imitating, but then you as the agent actually have to have a certain morality. And uh, that kind of harkens right back to Aristotle. But would you want to comment on that, how those two interplay, interchange together? Yeah, sure. I, I'll, I'll just keep it really brief. But what I'm <laughs> arguing there is what the what the ancient tradition was, and I think the biblical and Christian tradition has been what we can call virtue ethics, that that doing what is right is not just a matter of obeying principles or laws. It's about you as a person have being trained uh, to see and be in the world in ways that accords with that accord with who God is. That's the idea and and what reality is, the metaphysical reality as God has made it. So that's the basic idea of the virtue ethics tradition that we've largely lost in the modern period, but that was ubiquitous in the Christian tradition and the ancient Greek and philosophical system. Is So that's the idea that you you learn how to do what's right by imitating, that's a big part of it, uh, through habituation, uh, through models, and that it really focuses on who you are as a person, uh, that that matters. Um, yeah, there's more we could say about that. I mean, I, I talk about this stuff a lot in class. You can think of just examples from jurisprudence that the motives matter. I know you want to talk about emotions later. We'll get to this. Our motives matter. The difference between manslaughter and, and first degree or secondary murder is not the act, but it's the motive, right? The interior person. Mm -hmm. Or you think of the great illustration John Piper used to give all the time of like, you know, if you showed up at your uh, wife's door with flowers you know, at your house and you knock on the door and your wife answers and she says, oh, you know, you shouldn't have. You pull flowers out and say, you know, and she says, oh, that's so great. And you say, it's okay. It's my duty. You know, that, that, that the, yes, you did the right act of giving the flowers blessing, but it's not virtue because the heart is not attuned to it, right? This is the ancient and biblical and Christian understanding that who you are as a person matters in the act of morality. There's a lot of discussion. You'll hear, you hear this commonly that people will say that there's sort of this distinction between the head and the heart. And so then you get this idea that if I know something in my head, it's almost like that's a bad thing. And I need to know it differently in my heart. It seems like that can shut down thinking well about what the Bible says and about life. Um, how, does, how do you go about addressing that? Have you ever run into that? And then what are some ways you, how do you address that sort of an issue? Cause it kind of, it hits on what's going on here. Like there is thinking, but there is internal change. 
and to really push one or the other out seems like a problem to me. Yeah, good, good question. Yeah, again, there are a lot of, a lot of complicated issues here related to what the nature of humanity is. But I think from a biblical perspective, a biblical or theological anthropology or nature of humanity would not make it such a sharp distinction as we do in the modern period between thinking and feeling or thinking and the heart. In fact, in biblical parlance, um, the heart doesn't mean the emotions or affections. It means the inner person, the true person of who you are, which includes your reasoning and your affections, right? And your will, really. The heart is the real person uh, versus merely what you do externally. Um, and so uh, I think that's, I, I, the short story is that I think we have been influenced by modern ways of thinking from the 17th century on that have not helped us think carefully about the integration of the human as both a thinker and a feeler and a doer which the virtue tradition of old did uh, keep together very clearly. I don't know if that answered your question. I hope it did, but uh, in short oh, words. What would you say, kind of, we can get practical here, but why is it important that we educate our emotions? Like, why are they so key to us as a person? Yeah, yeah. So the first half of the book is trying to just help us rediscover this idea that, um, the Bible is a whole life philosophy, that it's providing us wisdom from God that isn't just for the religious aspect of our lives, but for every aspect of our lives. So that's the first part of the book. And then I turn and pivot and just try to say, well, let's look at three spaces where that really works out. What's the Christian philosophy? And so the three places I notice are emotions, uh, relationships, and then happiness, uh, which is this idea of flourishing. And in each of those, yeah. then I first say, what is what did ancient philosophers say about this topic and all the way up to like modern psychology and modern gurus and then turn to the Bible and say, and what's the Christian philosophy on this? Right. And one of the most surprising things for me to discover over the years was how important the topic of emotions were, was in ancient philosophy. Like when you, you know, when you think of philosophy, you don't think like, Oh, they're going to be talking about emotions a lot, but it turns out that's like that and friendship are two of the most important um, topics in all of ancient philosophy because they realized that if you were going to live a satisfying, flourishing life, you needed to figure out those two things are really key. If you want to be happy, you do need to think about those two things a lot. So for me, those chapters on emotions, I mean, I've cared about these issues and have been involved in counseling and therapy and psychological things for a while anyways. But those two, the, writing those two chapters were, was really important for me personally to kind of crystallize some thoughts uh, on what, what exactly emotions are, how they function as part of what it means to be human, and then what does the Bible say about them. Um, your listeners may want to go, if you just went to jonathanpennington.com, and there'll be resources. There's tons of like talks and you know videos and all kinds of stuff on there. And I've given quite a few presentations, fuller than we have time for here, like hour-long presentations on the nature of emotions and how to educate them. So you know, they're just, just reference that might be something your listeners might want to look at. Um, but in short, what I'd say is, yeah, this is, emotions are a crucial part of what it means to be human. They're made by God. Uh, they are, Jesus has emotions. More controversially, to understand this, God himself is presented as having emotions, but for sure Jesus does, and we do as humans. They're not a bad thing. And in a lot of Christianity, we are told to kind of squash our emotions or, um, you know, be suspicious of them. 
And while it's certainly true that our emotions are not all that we are, and they can be misleading and misled, we can't deny that they're a primary part of what it means to be human, including in our moral decision-making. Like I was just saying about premeditated, our motive, our motive is related to emotions. That's what I, the, the words are related to each other. And so what I try to do is just say, you know what, when you look at the, it's what do people in the world say emotions are and kind of survey that. But then when you look at the Bible, the simplest way I'd say it is the Bible is the best, most nuanced, sophisticated, thoughtful philosophy of emotions compared to anything else I've read in psychology or philosophy. And that it both encourages us to embrace that this is part of what it means to be human um, and that it's an important part of that and also encourages us to learn over time to shape and educate our emotions in ways that are directed toward God and the good life, um, love and joy and uh, peace and patience. And those are all fruits of the spirit, of course, and learning to consider uh, what's true of God and learning to cast our anxieties upon the Lord for he cares for us, learning to use our gifts of reflection and practicing, using our agency to practice thanksgiving. All these things shape our emotional life in very intentional ways. And that's a really important part of finding the, the life that Jesus is promising. You know, I thought it was interesting yeah. as I read the book, you're presenting a, this picture that Christianity actually gives the whole life philosophy the best. And it dawned on me that, that I don't know if you intended it this way, but there's a, a slight apologetics argument going on behind it. Did you intend that to be like, this is a defense of like the, the, the trueness of Christianity because it best matches reality? I did not intend that, okay. but I get that question all the time because it, that seems to be um, <laughs> what, one of the ways that God is using the book and kind of helping us understand these ideas. I have heard from many non-Christians actually uh, directly or indirectly, mm. Christians giving it to their non-Christian sibling or something. Mm. And, uh, it's a flaw. You know, I've heard from a lot of people like my mm. brother's a philosopher. I gave him this book and he was very intrigued by, you know, this kind of thing. Uh, and so uh, I'm very thankful that it, that it is kind of serving an apologetic purpose that that wasn't my goal. Uh, but I'm, I'm glad for that. Yeah. No, it's, it's really, I thought it was, it was fascinating the way that that worked. It's almost like when, like the way Francis Schaeffer talks about uh, people can live how they want, but they actually have to live in God's reality. It, it seemed like the book is describing that reality well. So anyways, I thought that part of the book was whether, I guess it was unintended, but hey, well done. That was awesome. <laughs> Great, thanks. In the book, you talk quite a bit about stoicism. Um, and I think you said, maybe I got this wrong, you said it would be like your second favorite uh, life, philosophy of life aside from Christianity. Um, so I've been on Daily Stoic every now and then. I've, I've kind of seen a couple of his videos and whatnot. Uh, what, do you want to just summarize the parts that if someone's familiar with Stoicism, like what are the parts that are actually maybe similar to Christianity? And then perhaps where do you see dangers? Because I do think Stoicism might be appealing to a, a wider audience out there. And so what, what's the part where Stoicism falls apart in comparison to Christianity? You guys, are, you guys ask great questions and ones for which I am really trying to limit my answers because there's so much to say. Yeah, I, I say it all the time. I think Stoicism is the second greatest philosophy of the world, um, with Christianity being the greatest philosophy. And and I I actually benefit a ton from Stoicism. I read the Stoics regularly, and have the as I 
if you look in the book, the little coins you can buy. I have those coins. That's a picture of my actual <laughs> coins. You know, I mean, a friend, some, some friends got it, got me, got them for me as a semi joke. But, but the, I really think there's a ton of great, and there's a revival of stoicism currently. Ryan Holiday is probably the, one of the main leaders yeah. of this. Yeah. You no, know, he's great. I mean, to read Marcus Aurelius is good for you, and to read Seneca and others, it's really good. Epictetus and Epicureans, even, are slightly different, but there's a lot of good in that. Um, yeah. So I'm very thankful. And what I really like about stoicism is that it really emphasizes personal agency. Um, it emphasizes personal responsibility for your own emotions, personal responsibility for your own actions, personal responsibility for your own mm. virtue. Um, and that's really good. I often feel like, man, if everybody would actually just read stoicism, the world would be a way better place, <laughs> a lot less sort of, you know, <laughs> complaining and, and, uh, victim <laughs> mindset and things. So that's really good. However, however, it's this, you, know, you have to just take some kind of maturity of thought to live with. While it is an amazing philosophy for so many things, it is fundamentally wrong too. And, and it's weird to kind of hold those things. It takes a little maturity to hold those things together. But some of the ways in which it's so flawed uh, relative to Christianity is that ultimately it's not real. In other words, there's a, mm. there's a, a very... A very it's not a realism is what i should say more clearly in the way that christianity is a realism it's dealing with reality for stoics at the end of the day it's quite similar to buddhism i think in the sense that really the key to not the key to be happy is to kind of distance yourself from uh any negativity uh, including any negative, especially your own interpretations of life in a negative way. And while again, there's a lot of good to that, the, the problem with it is that, mm. you know, there really is suffering in the world. There really mm -hmm. is rape. There really is injustice. And that we, that, that stoicism ultimately becomes about you finding your own happiness by distancing yourself from all kinds of suffering. And, and again, the good of it is, uh, you know, to, to quote a lot of the Stoics, we, we suffer more in our imagination than in reality. I think that's true. I think a lot of our suffering is self-inflicted by our interpretation of events. The problem is that's not a sufficient philosophy for the brokenness of the world. And so I think Stoicism doesn't, in my mind, and maybe if Ryan Holiday were responding to this, he might say this isn't fair, but I don't think this is unfair. I don't think it provides an ability to really deal with the reality of suffering in the world, real suffering and injustice, and it doesn't really provide hope. And this is the, this is the great core of the Judeo-Christian faith is hope, hope that God is going to restore uh, the world to the place of righteousness and goodness and shalom and beauty that we long for, that we feel in our bones, that we, we cry out against in suffering and in death. And I don't, I think stoicism can only kind of say at the end of the day, well, as long as you worry about that, you won't be happy. But Christianity says that longing and that brokenness you feel is precisely what God is going to fix in the end. That longing that you feel is exactly the sign that you were made for something more than this. And the solution to happiness is to hope in God and to labor towards goodness and beauty now, but it's ultimately hope. And I think that fundamental orientation of Christianity towards a time when God is going to set the world to right uh, is what really distinguishes Christianity from Stoicism in a, in a fundamental way. And related to that, it can't really deal with guilt and shame. 
you know, like what, what does oh, a yeah. stoic do with guilt and shame? Well, you just kind of have to say, I need to stop worrying about it. You know what? There is real guilt mm. there. Yes. There's false guilt. There's false shame for sure. But you know what? There's real guilt and there's real shame. And if without a mechanism of finding forgiveness in a relationship with your creator, there's really, you're never really going to be free. And so I feel like Christianity provides this sort of fundamental hope both now and for the future to be free from our guilt and shame and to be free from the brokenness of the world. So that's, that's the distinction I would make. That's very helpful. Thank you. And even thinking like first Peter three, where we're made, we're expecting suffering, but the reason we can walk into it is because of the hope. That's very helpful. Thank you. That, that was a very helpful answer. Good. Thanks. Yeah, remember just reading before we... the section you had on guilt and shame in the book. And um, that'd be another reason uh, read, our listener to pick up the book and give it a read because uh, Dr. Pennington works through that. And that is a huge distinction between the Christian faith is, is that the Christian faith actually has, has answers to all of these emotions and feelings that we have without denying their existence. So that's great. Uh, let's just end off with just talking about friendship. And I thought you kind of walked through some of those aspects really well. This is what's central to our podcast is reading good books with your friends. It's like, that's what we want to promote is what we're doing here, taking a good book and then talking about it with, with your buddies. Why is that so crucial to a good life? Man, I, I feel like we need like a nine hour version that nobody would want, really want to listen to because there's so many things I want to say. I mean, again, I, I do, I, I, I do two. longer. <laughs> I, yeah, maybe so. <laughs> we do, I do longer talks on friendship. So I'll have to again kind of condense this, but uh, yeah, you know, here, here's a, here's a new way I've been kind of talking about it recently. Just there's some new material I'll throw on you um, that we are fundamentally we before we are I um, that to be human is fundamentally to be um, to need community. Just, I mean, there's a million ways you could argue this, but just think about, you know, Genesis one and two before the fall everything is good, 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 good. And there's one thing that said not to be good before the fall. And that's for the human to be alone. And then you think of the image of God is both male and female together. You know, none of even us males here talking, we are not the completion of the image of God by ourselves. It's both male and female to be in the image of God. And then, you know, you just think about just from a, the way that human gestation and, and, uh, development occurs we are totally dependent on other humans from the very beginning neurologically psychologically physiologically socially um, to, to be human is to be in need of others and to find life through others like so we are fundamentally we and so that's that's one way we could i don't talk about that way in the book but i think that's one way we could get at this and once again surprisingly if you read aristotle or Seneca or Cicero or any of them, one of their main topics is friendship. Again, when you and I think philosophy, we think, oh, they're off there, you know, just talking about abstract things and, you know, dropping as grapes are dropped into their mouths, you know, but that, that's, that's, that is the least thing that they did. What they mostly cared about was hanging out with their bros and talking about stuff and reading books together and figuring stuff out, you know, and throwing discuses together or whatever they did. And so this, um, you know, this topic of friendship was a big part. Two of the 10 books of Aristotle's famous book on ethics for his son 
the Nicomachean Ethics, two of the ten books are about friendship. <laughs> you know, if you like, if you and I were writing an ethics book, would two of the ten sections of it be on friendship? Probably not. But this is like this crucial, mm-hmm. crucial aspect. So, mm-hmm. and uh, then you know, you think of the great in the history. You, you think of the Inklings, right? I mean, you, you think of lots of people who have found life and friendship, and I certainly have as well. So. Uh, then I try to trace that through in the Bible that you have some good examples of friendship as well. Uh, mm-hmm. and yeah, I got lost your question now. Sorry, I don't know what the question was, but yeah, it's a really important topic uh, that is. Yeah, I think that's the answer. Yeah. I mean, you're encouraging our listeners to have have meaningful relationships and friendships. I remember you quoting, I think it was Aristotle, with the three different levels of the French friendships. And uh, that's awesome. And yeah, thanks for sharing. Any final thought on why someone should read this book, Dr. Pennington, before we let you go? I've got six kids. That's why. Um, <laughs> no, I, I, uh, no I, I'm so encouraged that you guys have read it, and it means a lot to me that it's been helpful for you. And I, um, I, I, am, I, do lo- I love this book in the sense that it really was very meaningful to me to kind of wrestle through these things and and to fall more in love with God and his wisdom and his beauty as a result of great reading or of, of research and, and writing this book. And I, it's encouraging that uh, it sounds like that's been a blessing to you guys as well. So thank you. It has. Thank and you. so, yeah. Uh, well, with that, we'll cap this episode. And uh, if you're listening, go ahead and uh, head on over to FBBC books and, and find it with that. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Thinklings podcast. We would love to hear from you. If you have any feedback, suggestions, or potential topics that you'd like us to discuss, you can contact us through our email, thinklingspodcast at gmail.com. Remember, don't let this conversation end with this podcast. Read good books, talk about them with your friends, and always continue to cultivate your mind. See you next time on the Thinklings podcast.